1: So before we get into this one, quick housekeeping note. By the end of May, we are here in Atlanta moving our office. We are (laughs) moving out of Ponce City Market uh, and... We will start new journeys elsewhere, even though Samantha and I are largely working from home. So. Yes. To be fair,
2: I never had an office there. I would just sit yeah. at the main table and look around. And when someone asked me if I wanted a desk, I just said, no,
1: I don't want people to see me. <laughs> that's, yep, that's about right. That's about right. I have an office and it's chaotic. Well, it's a desk uh, in an open space, which is what we had. It's chaotic and I have to go clear it out. Um and it's causing some stress, but uh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. But I mention it because some of you very kind listeners occasionally send us things and we are moving our address. So if you are interested, it's never an obligation, but always a pleasure to receive stuff from you all. If, you, if you'd if you like to send us something, uh, just email us or contact us somehow and we'll get you the new address, which I'm still not sure what it is, but we can find it.
2: Um, yes. I don't know if anybody yeah. really knows exactly the address because it's still being set up. Yeah. <laughs>
1: true as a place so who knows who who knows if people keep asking oh where are you going to i'm like oh no <laughs> so, i actually God. do know
2: i went over and looked at it but it's obviously being currently built for mm-hmm. us but the whole space is definitely one of those uh work live eat spaces yeah is that, is that a thing live love i think you said it in a diff- something <laughs>
1: live love laugh I don't know. <laughs> you, you're not wrong. I'm sure that's been used somewhere. <laughs> it's got an enormous food hall, that's for sure. It's delicious. I will say that. Okay. Well, if we ever make it over there, I'm sure if we we'll, ever. <laughs> plenty of food will be had. Okay, so just some quick housekeeping. And now let us get into this episode, which is a book club pick that we are doing on Michelle Zahner's 2021 book, Crying in h Mart. And just right off the bat, this one has a lot to do with grief and loss of a parent. Like a lot. If that is something that you don't want to hear about right now, I totally understand. It is pretty intense. Also, as we're going to talk about, this was an interesting one for Samantha and I because it was triggering for us in different ways. Right. Yeah. So there's stuff about identity in there um, that was pretty upsetting for you and stuff about grief and loss that was upsetting for me. It's a fantastic book, though. Like, don't let that scare you away, but go in armed with the knowledge.
2: (laughs) It gives you all the feels, um, as I like to say. And it definitely... Is a somber note because she's so real, so raw with it, Mm -hmm. um, and just bears it all essentially, Mm -hmm. including her relationship with her father and her relationship with her Korean family and (laughs) her mom, obviously. It just kind of like the things that we've been going down recently, especially during this AAPI Heritage Month. A lot of emotional trauma and bonding and forgiveness with parents and children, specifically mothers. There's mm-hmm. a lot of that theme happening in this one as yeah. well. I guess it's forever. Like, we we know. We know when it comes to mother-daughter relationships, there's a whole different level in general and the expectations and then culturally what is placed on you. So, yeah, definitely a lot of real human, real raw emotions with death and grief on top of loss and kind of learning to forgive yourself and others. It's a
1: whole thing. It's a whole thing. (laughs) It is a whole thing indeed. And we have a lot to say about it. The plot most simply chronicles Michelle's relationship with her mother before and after she dies of cancer in her 50s. And Michelle was born in Seoul to an American father and Korean mother. They immigrated to Portland, Oregon when Michelle was a year old. And the relationship between Michelle and her mom was complicated and full of misunderstandings. And only after her mother's cancer diagnosis and death does Michelle fully realize how much food and specifically Korean food was her mother's way of expressing love and kind of looking back on their relationship and understanding it differently. Um, And yeah, it's an examination of grief, music, love, mother-daughter relationships, and identity. And yes, food, lots of food, lots of cravings were had. And as a title, Crying in H Mart, I have never been to H-Mart, despite many efforts and longing (laughs) to go for many, many years. But you have, right, Right. Samantha?
2: So um, just like any uh, store that is specific to a cultural group or ethnicity, they are located in those areas. Um, And for us, I'm sure, because H-Mart is a national international market, ours are placed into the heavily uh, Asian immigration populations. So what we call Buford Highway has one, and it's fairly new. Further up, there's a place called uh, Sugarloaf Parkway that has a giant one as well. I think they have the Super H Mart, and it's huge. Mm-hmm. Essentially, these are, I think people everyone should know, these are Asian markets specialized with all the foods that you cannot find typically in, a, uh, in an American grocery store. Um, and yeah, it's been a whole discovery, and it's amazing. It is a trip uh, down if a different cultural lane. And we're going to talk about it in a minute. But for me, it was like, okay, is this reminiscent? Do I remember what these are? What are these things? Are they familiar? And yeah, I did have moments of like, okay, okay. This is familiar and a panic, of course, but we'll talk about that in a minute. And they are pristine. Typically, they are pristine. The ones I've been to have been very pristine and very organized. And you go down and you can get your goju goru and goji chung down that way. Fish sauce in this one. tteokbokki on the other side. And they typically have a food hall. Um, and I have found my favorite Korean restaurant uh, with... To, which I love this description in the book where they talk about the Korean women with the visors because, yes, that's exactly what they are wearing. And because it's the pandemic, too, they typically wear masks and gloves, uh, rushing and yelling at people to come get their food. It's chaos and it's wonderful, mm-hmm. um, but have the best types of food. Honestly, probably some of the best Korean food I've ever had just ordering it at the market and leaving. They also have the kitschy new k- Korean food, so the mochi donuts. They have uh-huh. those there. Uh, the the Korean corn dogs, which are typically uh, deep fried with something on it. So I've had the ones with potatoes, which is delicious, with a hot dog and the uh, mozzarella cheese in it. And uh, my partner went the other day, so there was one a little closer to us, and he got a hot dog, and the Korean woman was like, you want sugar? And he was like, I don't know. And she's like, no, you do. You want sugar. And so she added <laughs> it off, which is such a Korean way of doing it. this. Is the, and she was like, this is the Korean way. And he's like, okay, okay, I got you. Yeah, let's do this. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was delicious. But yeah, so it is a wide array of an experience in in finding these different foods and things that you can't typically find anywhere. I will say the things that you find there are going to be cheaper than you find in a regular grocery store. So if it's a specialty that you can't find and you somehow get it at Publix, it's probably going to be three to four times more. So for example, I've gotten really into getting making and uh, which is our Korean appetizers or Korean uh, small dishes, side dishes. And one of my favorites is uh, the bean sprout one. I made you try taste it. I was like, taste this. It's so uh, good. <laughs> and the cucumber one, I was like, oh, you must have this. Um, mm-hmm. But like getting... Bean sprouts, actual bean sprouts, I can get like a pound to three pounds. Uh, and for like $1.99, while getting a half a pound of not really good quality at Publix was like six bucks. Ooh. Unreal. Yeah. So mm-hmm. things like that. <laughs> You're like, mm-hmm. okay, it's worth going to this and getting all the different types of noodles that yeah. I love and like just pretty much live off of. hmm but yeah, it is it is a feast, and I feel like I have to go and try new things every time I go, try specific things. I have been watching all the different TikToks about people going to H Mart, and I'm finding my new favorites and things mm-hmm. that I've never actually tried to things that I have tried and and learning uh, how to use the product. So it's a great experience. Uh, we I go way too much. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm excited because I'm actually moving a little closer to them. So, yay.
1: Yeah.
0: But
2: yeah, if you've never gone, take that chance to experience a little different from the everyday culture. of Those who know it. Some people have been sending us stuff from there for a while now, I think, or from an yeah. Asian specialty store. And thank you. Yes. Um, but yeah, those it, it is a delight.
1: It sounds wonderful. Um, and there are great descriptions of it. In the book that sort of open it, so we wanted to read this long quote.
2: So it starts: H Mart is a supermarket chain that specializes in Asian food. The H stands for Hanaharam, a Korean phrase that roughly translates to "one armful of groceries." H Mart is where the parachute kids flock to find the brand of instant noodles that reminds them of home. It's where Korean families buy rice cakes to make tteokguk. The beef and rice cake soup that brings in the new year is the one place where you can find a giant vat of peeled garlic because it's the only place that truly understands how much garlic you'll need for the kind of food your people eat. Yes, so much, so much garlic. H Mart is freedom from the single aisle ethnic section in regular grocery stores. They don't prop Goya beans next to bottles of sriracha here. Instead, you'll likely find me crying by the bonchan refrigerators, remembering the taste of my mom's soy sauce eggs and cold radish soup. Or in the freezer section, holding a stack of Dublin skins, thinking of all the hours that mom and I spent in the kitchen table folding minced pork and chives into the thin dough. Sobbing near the dry goods, asking myself, am I even Korean anymore if there's no one left to call and ask which brand of seaweed we used to buy? Yeah, and I'm not going to lie, this whole moment where she talks about uh, not feeling Korean anymore because she had no link to it since her mother had passed away. that was That's kind of the feeling in general, like searching, Googling, feeling the shame of Googling brands. Uh, Because I I don't know outside of the taste and memories that I had as a child and trying to come back to it without (laughs) falling out with the trauma trigger Mm -hmm. and and getting into my identity because I've talked about this before and I repeatedly talk about it and I think people understand food sensory is really heavy in our lives. And it really brings up a lot for us, whether it's a moment of good or bad or comfort or any of those things. Um, and trying to readjust my emotional and mental state of being to trying to enjoy something that I don't know if I'm allowed to enjoy. It's a whole thing. And going into stores and seeing myself as fake, afraid that someone will see me, like watching the Asian women coming through and rushly Get annoyed by me because I'm standing in front of something that they're like, no, nah, this is this is what I need to get. You're in my way. They don't mm-hmm. care. They push me out, and that's fine. <laughs> I love it. Uh, but that's exactly that panic of like, oh my god, what am I doing here? Am I worthy of being here? Um, because I can't identify with this. I'm trying to reestablish a connection. And I know she and I came about it in different forms and Nicole Chung and I talked about it uh, previously and trying to figure this out because she had finally made her connection with her Korean family and they were teaching her these things. Um, I still don't have that. And trying to figure that out at such a whole level, but the underestimated feeling of like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. I didn't realize I was going to be overwhelmed in a store, which for so many love. And honestly, it's kind of been not fetishized, but glamorized now because, you know, Asian food has become popular and I'm glad for it because I want it to be popular because I feel like finally I don't feel ashamed and trying to hide things and now I'm trying to claim it and I can't, so there's a whole different thing. But it is, it's, it's a weird juxtaposition on trying to love something when I hated it when I denied it and now I can't remember it and don't know if I'm worthy of it. It's the whole thing. And so having that feeling of panic, not necessarily of sobbing, don't get me wrong, I've come home sobbing and, and being triggered, is a whole level. And I actually had an experience as so I was talking about H Mart and telling you about the wonderful cooking of these women. They were so sweet, giggling because you know it was such chaos. People were trying to get food. We came at the busiest time thinking that it wasn't going to be busy. And when I was getting my food, she was so nice, Never, uh, She never really spoke Korean to me, which I was grateful for because I was panicked that she would and I would have to identify myself, which is also in the book, as not being able to speak Korean. That uh, when I got to say, I ran away before she could respond to me because I was trying to do it saying quickly because I, I I really felt that was a huge step for me to even try uh, any any type of Korean because I have not spoken it since seven years old and I cannot remember for the life of me how to speak it. But there's that level of panic of trying to figure this out and still really hoping that I could fake my way through it and not ruin my moment. It felt nice. I did do it. I ran away. I sat down and told uh, my partner, who is uh, American, and he was like, oh, good. I was like, how'd you feel? I was like, I don't know. I blacked out, (laughs) which is essentially how I felt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean... There's so much in this in this book um, that when I was reading it, I thought of you because uh, you've told me yeah. these kinds of things before. But it can be, food can be uh, such a powerful source of memory that can be very triggering. And so it makes sense to me like stores can be too. They can have that like potential to be somewhere where you can reconnect, but also somewhere where you can okay. get triggered. Yeah. It makes sense. Okay, another big theme... Are probably the biggest theme, the heart of this uh, is the mother-daughter relationship, this kind of family uh, relationship. And there's definitely a lot of like, I was kind of surprised. There's a lot of like tough love and trying to win Guardians over. I guess I didn't think it was going to be, This sounds like really ridiculous, but I thought it was going to be like her mother died and then, kind of grappling with the thoughts and trying to like regain these memories and stuff. But it was much more like long drawn out. Yeah. <laughs> it was painful. It was incredibly yeah. painful. It literally delves
2: into the start of her diagnosis mm-hmm. to the aftermath and playing every scene in between mm-hmm. and very descriptive of uh, her sickness mm-hmm. at the time and how it affected all of them all of the family Mm -hmm. and her own drive and trying to be, and we're going to talk about the perfect daughter. Yeah, exactly.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Kim Crawford Wines. Life is busy. There are so many things on your to-do list with so little time to do them. And you're always thinking about others' needs before thinking of your own. Trust me, we understand.
2: Because golden hour is more than just time, it's whenever you want to savor amazing. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more. That's KimCrawfordWines.com to find
1: Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring. So here's a quote. Like many a kid trapped in a small city, I felt bored and then suffocated. By the time I was in high school, the desire for independence, trailing a convoy of insidious hormones had transformed me from a child who couldn't bear to sleep without her mother into a teenager who couldn't stand her touch. Every time she picked a ball of lint off my sweater, or pressed her hand between my shoulder blades to keep me from slouching, or rubbed her fingers on my forehead to ward off wrinkles, it felt like a hot iron puckering against my skin. Somehow, as if overnight, every simple suggestion made me feel like I was overheating, and my resentment and sensitivity grew and grew until they bubbled up and exploded, and that in an instant, uncontrollably, I'd rip my body away and scream, stop touching me. Can't you ever leave me alone? Maybe I want wrinkles. Maybe I want reminders that I've lived my life. And I, yeah, like you said, Samantha, she's so honest. And I really connected with after you lose somebody, you start going through like a roll decks of everything you've right. done. Right. And especially as a kid, because it's hard for you to like admit, I was a teenager. I was a kid. I was dealing with this stuff when it was Kind of bratty or whatever it was. In my case, like my grandparents, I was at. I wasn't like this quite, but I was almost embarrassed to hang out with them, and I yeah. don't really know why. And then they died, and I look back on that and I hate that. Like, yeah, I, I hate that so much. Um, but their their relationship did have a lot of tension and contention, and arguments and high emotions in it. Right. I mean, I definitely
2: remember being embarrassed around my mom for something, but at the same time. Uh, I also remember wishing my parent was around more, so they didn't come to my events much. They didn't, and and don't get me wrong, it wasn't because they didn't want to, it was because they were busy. I was one of four, and things were happening very quickly, and they were very busy. My dad was constantly gone to work. But I kind of wish I had that embarrassment of them being present on things. uh, And felt proud when they did come around. But at the same time, I definitely could see, like, overbearing and be like no 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 no." so i kind of had the opposite so it's definitely a different thing but it yeah Mm -hmm. the regrets of like really wishing we could cherish it more always Mm -hmm. some regrets Mm -hmm. and moving on it says she says my mother looked at me as if i were a worm an unfamiliar speck eating away at all her efforts this was not the girl who clung to her sleeves in the grocery store this was not the girl who begged to sleep on the floor beside her bed With a phone to my ear, I stared back at her defiantly. But when I heard a voice on the other end of the line, I panicked and hung up. So she tried calling 911 at this point. My mother took it as an opportunity to tackle me. She grabbed me by the forearms for the first time. We were locked together, wrestling to pin each other to the carpet. I tried to fight her off, but discovered there was a physical place I would not go. A strength I knew I had to overtake her, but could not access. I let her pin my wrist and climb on top of my stomach. "'Why are you doing this to us? "'After everything we've given you, "'how can you treat us this way?' she yelled, "'her tears and spit falling onto my face. "'She smelled like olive oil and citrus. "'Her hands felt soft and slick, "'greased with cream as they pushed my wrist "'against the coarse carpet. "'The weight of her on me began to ache like a bruise. "'My father hovered over us, unsure of his place in it all, "'searching for a reason why a kid like me "'could wind up so miserable.'" I had an abortion after you because you were such a terrible child. So, yeah, this whole passage is happening when they finally erupted and screaming started happening. And uh, her mom was angry to the point that she was trying to get physically violent as well as uh, trying to get her father involved to be physically violent. And when that kind of threatened, she called 911, then hung up. Um, Mm -hmm. And then that was the last. Expression which obviously haunted her mm-hmm. <laughs> it's throughout the book, uh, which was haunting in every way for sure. Yeah, kind of like being told. my parents never told me that they ne- that they wish they didn't adopt me, but like my family, my siblings did though.
1: <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's interesting that piece in there because, again, like you said, there's kind of a trend in Hollywood right now—the similar thing where she. The mother was trying to like make her daughter into something Um, and was like putting all this focus onto her. And it was sort of the like, it it wasn't working because that's not who she was. (laughs) Um, Right. Here's another quote. Now more than ever, I wished desperately for a way to transfer pain, wished I could prove to my mother just how much I loved her, that I could just crawl into her hospital cot and press my body close enough to absorb her burden. It seemed only fair that life should present such an opportunity to prove one's filial piety, that the months my mother had been a vessel for me, her organs shifting and cramping together to make room for my existence, and the agony she'd endured upon my exit could be repaid by carrying this pain in her place, the right of an only daughter." Yeah, and that goes back to like what we talked about with the dutiful daughter, Um, and there's obviously intersectional layers to this too. But kind of that pressure, and I, I felt that, and I've also just felt like guilty for any pain that I've caused, and I've Mm. had this similar thing like, how can I make it up? I can never make it up. Um, But yeah, that just resonated. Yeah, and then I wanted to include this because then you get kind of get to see the. How their relationship evolves. So this is the mother. Uh, You know what I realized? I've just never met someone like you as if I were a stranger from another town or an eccentric guest accompanying a mutual friend to a dinner party. It was a strange thought to hear from the mouth of the woman who had birthed and raised me with whom I shared a home for 18 years. Someone who was half of me. My mother had struggled to understand me just as I struggled to understand her. Thrown as we were on opposite sides of a fault line, generational, cultural, linguistic, we wandered lost without a reference point, each of us unintelligible to the other's expectations, until these past few years when he had just begun to unlock the mystery, carve the psychic space to accommodate each other, appreciate the differences between us, linger in our refracted commonalities. Then what would have been the most fruitful years of understanding were cut violently short, and I was left alone to decipher the secrets of inheritance without its key. Yeah.
2: Uh, I love that take about the stranger, because it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter how you raise someone and how you might know of their past and, and what they were and who they were and the ins and outs, but mm-hmm. when it comes down to the adult version, which you can't control, no one can control, they are a separate person, a separate being, mm-hmm. and you know that level of conversation of like, oh, it's nice to meet you again. Essentially, it's kind of that conversation and accepting that. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to control that, it's a whole different level. When you do, you do have a moment of like, okay, I have to reframe how I think of you. And so Mm -hmm. this is how I will interact with you. But yeah, it took distance Mm -hmm. to get to to this point.
1: Yeah. And I think that it's natural for, I say this as someone who's not a parent, but to me, I feel like it's probably natural to, Because I fantasize about having children, but to imagine how they're going to grow up. Right. And you, there's a part of that where you're like, oh, they're going to go do this and do this. And I'm going to provide so that they can do this. And then maybe they want like totally not that thing. Yeah, I'm sure it's <laughs> and a And that can be hard. Oh, yeah, that can definitely be hard to, to let go and accept for sure. Right.
2: Um, And it goes on. She was my champion. She was my archive. She had taken the utmost care to preserve the evidence of my existence and growth, capturing me in images, saving all my documents and possessions. She had all knowledge of my being memorized. The time I was born, my unborn cravings, the first book I read, the formation of every characteristic, every element and little victory. She observed me with unparalleled interest, inexhaustible devotion.
1: So that's sort of the flip side, right? Of right. you know, when you get older, you realize you didn't know everything about your parents or your guardians either. Um yeah. we've definitely talked about that
2: before about the fact that we discover things like, oh, this is what my parents were doing. This is kind of an insight of how they what they thought of me or who they thought me to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I know she talks about the fact that her CD was found in her mom's yeah uh, a player the car. Yeah. yeah. As well as the fact that her mom, then she never really talked about that. And that was a big mm-hmm. point of contention between the two of them. But her mom was still proud and still mm-hmm. supported that. And it is. It's not nice to see. I think about that sometimes with my own childhood. I'm like, I don't have those things. I don't have any of those memories for me. And I feel mm-hmm. lost. I feel like I've lost something in that. So when mm-hmm. I hear it, I'm like, oh. Jealous, aw, yeah, <laughs> but it is still nice to see. Like, cause I'm sure my yeah. parents, my mother has kept much as she could. A lot of it burned, actually, uh, yeah. but she did do a scrapbook for me, just so mm-hmm. that she I I had that, and it's mm-hmm. nice to see.
1: Yeah, my mom did that too uh, for for all of us. And that, for some reason, I I mean, occasionally I get morbid and I imagine. I mean, you know, sort of necessary, but I imagine, what's well, going to happen after she dies. And I, I keep thinking, like, if I find those books, it's going to wreck me. <laughs> it's
2: yeah, <gonna> destroy me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, any time when you go through someone's things
1: and the long memories, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's yeah. an ordeal. It is. Uh, one thing, we're not going to go too in-depth in this, but I did what I've mentioned. Um, we also get to see a lot of uh, relationships with other women on her mother's side of the family. Um, and we also get to see her friendships with other women. And it was really nice. She had a good support group. Um, yeah. And they had a system in place. There was some drama, but it was... There was a lot of women involved in like caring for her and in her life. Right. Yeah.
2: I think a lot of that had to do with uh, connecting to her culture, that mm-hmm. she was afraid she was going to lose and not be able mm-hmm. to teach. Uh, we know that the friend that she made in Japan who helped her do the dishes... Uh, Meaning food, cooking food, and came and supported her. and kind of took control um, yeah. and felt a source of uh, ownership over her a little mm-hmm. bit. And I, I if it's familiar, there's a lot of Korean culture in that uh, the women being the matriarch and taking over, uh, being mm-hmm. an uni, meaning the sisters. That they had that they never had, or the sisters that's not close. So it's it's a deep relationship, and we've seen it in, in many times when it comes to Asian conversations. We saw it in Turning Red as the uh, aunts came in, not necessarily to be the mother's friend, but they are as a crew. We saw it in Joy Luck Club where the women really supported each other because it is it's very like male female gendered specifics, and you trust the people that are close to you, and specifically your gender. All of those things. So it, I feel like it was very culturally along the lines of who she was and mm-hmm. what she missed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And then we wanted to talk about adolescence, which is a pretty big theme in here. It's sort of, as we mentioned in one of the other quotes, when uh, Michelle was younger, she was really close with her mom and then kind of adolescence came in and they it just kind of fractured. And she's really open with high school depression which I appreciated and related to. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yep. I remember this. Here's a quote. She doubled down, morphing into a towering obelisk that shadowed my every move. She needled me over my weight, the width of my eyeliner, the state of my breakouts, and my lack of commitment to the toners and exfoliants she ordered for me from QBC. Everything I wore was an argument. I wasn't allowed to shut my bedroom door. After school, when my friends would head to one another's houses for weekday sleepovers, I was whisked away to extracurriculars, then stuck in the woods, left to grumble alone in my room with the door left open. I think a lot of us can relate to this. I certainly could. My my parents weren't this intense. But I had like, you couldn't close the door if I had a, a man, a dude over, for sure. But sometimes my friends too... And like, I didn't really have this makeup thing, but I had the comments about my clothes mm. <laughs> and turned back around. <laughs> so I never really dealt with
2: that necessarily because I did not dress. I was always insecure of my body, so I never dressed in that way at any point in time. My mom was very cautious on teaching me about makeup and such because she didn't want me to wear too much makeup. So very conservative, mm. very conservative. Mm-hmm. So if I lo- like understood all that, when I did get concerned about my acne, she did take me to a dermatologist. Like that's which is surprising me now and stuff like that. <laughs> but we did have the rule about leaving the door open no matter what. Uh, so it wasn't because I rarely had boys over. That was not a thing for me. Uh, mm-hmm. But typically, yeah, they at least cracked. I'm not yeah. sure if it was for circulation or for privacy stuff. I'm not positive. <laughs>
1: Hmm. (laughs) Indeed. Well, here's where uh, music comes in. Into the vacuum of my disinterest, music rushed to fill the void. It cracked a fissure, splintered a vein through the already precarious and widening rift between my mother and me. It would become a chasm that threatened to swallow us whole. Nothing was as vital as music, the only comfort for my existential dread. I spent my days downloading songs one at a time off LimeWire and getting into heated discussions on AIM about whether the Foo Fighters acoustic version of Everlong was better than the original. I pocketed my allowance and lunch money to spend exclusively on CDs from House of Records, analyzing lyrics and liner notes, obsessing over interviews with the champions of Pacific Northwest indie rock, memorizing their rosters of labels like K Records and Kill Rock Stars, and plotting what concerts I'd attend. I threw this in partly because of nostalgia, because LimeWire, right. Right. AIM. Yep. Yeah. used all yeah. that.
2: I found my iPod recently, and I just found out they're being discontinued, so I'm like, this is in good shape. What do I do with this? My partner looked at it. and He's like, "This has a camera on it." I'm like, "Oh yeah, it has a camera on it."
1: Oh, they were so hard to maneuver, though. It I would really love was, to show. Yeah, I would love to show it to a youth uh, and just watch them try to figure it out.
2: <laughs> yeah, actually, I think uh, we found a charger, so we were going to try to charge mine. But yes. yeah, trying to download songs, mm-hmm. uh, CD deals where you get CD for a penny, and then you have yes. to subscribe and you quickly unsubscribe so you can just get the one for the. Penny, I had mm-hmm. a friend who uh, would burn these CDs and sell them.
1: Illegal, too. y'all. <laughs> I, did I was that like, too. <laughs> you, you did blue collar crime here. What is happening? <laughs> I got asked at, at a by a random person at a Zaxby's once if I could if he could buy a CD for me, and I was like, oh, I've gone too far. I've got to shut this down. <laughs> Strangers know about me.
2: Yeah, <laughs> my friend did the same thing, and he made a lot of money. He talked about how much he made, I was like, oh my mm-hmm. god, really? Yeah, I would never I, could, I was not that kid I could not do it also I didn't have a CD burner so yeah you know, there's that uh, which by the way I found my partner had like stacks and stacks of CDs I think for uh-huh. more for computers but it's to burn stuff and I was like do you need this anymore does anybody <laughs> so I'll take them <laughs> I know you will
1: mm-hmm
2: Because golden hour is more than just time, it's whenever you want to savor amazing. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more. That's KimCrawfordWines.com to find
1: Kim Crawford Wine near you. Savor amazing. For those 21 and over, please savor responsibly. Constellation Imports, Rutherford, California. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC.
2: Yeah, going on, she says, but nothing impacted me so profoundly as the first time I got my hands on a DVD of the Ya, ya Ya's live at the Fillmore, the front woman, Karen O oh, was the first icon of the music world I worshipped who looked like me. She was half Korean and half white with an unrivaled showmanship that obliterated the docile Asian stereotype. She was famous for wild onstage antics, spitting water into the air, bounding across to the far edges of the stage and deep-throating a microphone before lassoing it above her head by its cable gape at the image, I found myself in a strange state of ambivalence. My first thought being, how do I get to do that? And my second, if there's already one Asian girl doing this, then there's no longer space for me. Back then, I didn't know what a scarcity mentality was. The dialogue surrounding representation in music was in its nascent stages. And because I didn't personally know any other girls who played music, I didn't know there were others like me struggling with the same feelings. I didn't have the analogical capacity to imagine a white boy in the same situation, watching a live DVD of, say, the Stooges and thinking, if there's already an Iggy Pop, how could there possibly be room for another white guy in music? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Everything about that hit me. Everything about that. This is when I talk about, I thought I wanted to be an actor at a young time. And I'm like, well, they already have ABC. I think Lucy Liu was one of them. And I'm like, I can't be as cool as her. Um, Not realizing there's more than one, there can be more than one Asian roles, but we see it so oftentimes, especially when it's whitewashed and cast to white people looking kind of Asian. It is so insulting because I'm like, wait, you really are saying there's no room for Asian actors or Asian people to be up front. Um, What is this? Like that whole like scarcity mentality and the fact that we're competing with each other, not uplifting each other and having whole casts and movies Mm -hmm. made about it. What about just Asian families, that's not real because they're only sidekicks. And we can't see them as f- main characters or being singers. No. At, you know, like having K-pop was big, but still not as big as what it is today, I feel like. I know it was around, mm-hmm. but it still wasn't taken seriously as rock yeah. or any of like and, and even let's just kind of that conversation about pop music and being not as cool as rock or grunge. But having Asian people being representations for that That's unheard of. That's unheard Mm -hmm. of. And when you see something, you cling to that identity. I'm like, oh my God, there's something, this looks kind of, you know, when I talked about being like Beckham, we are not from the same country. We are not Mm -hmm. of the same ethnicity. But still, I felt a little seen because here is a brown Asian woman taking on the main character role and not just a sidekick. And I'm like, what? And their families coming in to be main plot lines and having really deep uh, understanding and seeing tradition and really having a depth to their character and families. You're like, what? No, is that for real? Mm-hmm. And having that, what kind of, how it kind of shocks you
1: into the reality of like, oh, okay, yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm. And that's something we've talked about before that whole scarcity mentality and how bad it is. Um Another thing we wanted to talk about this was just something I found interesting that was throughout the book is sort of this focus on appearances that her mother had um so here's a quote she was obsessed with appearances and spent hours watching QVC. She phoned in orders for cleansing conditioners, specialty toothpaste, and jars of caviar oil scrubs, serums, moisturizers, toners, and anti-aging creams. She believed in QVC products with the zeal of a conspiracy theorist. If you questioned the legitimacy of a product, she'd erupt in self-defense. My mom was wholeheartedly convinced that Super Smile toothpaste made our teeth five shades whiter, and Dr. Denise's beautiful complexion three-piece skincare kit shaved 10 years off our faces. Her bathroom counter was an island full of glass pots and tinted jars. She dipped, dabbed, rubbed, patted, and smoothed onto her face, religiously following a 10-step skincare regimen that included a microcurrent wand for electrocuting wrinkles. Every night from the hall, I could hear the clapping of her palms against her cheeks and the hum of pulsing electricity supposedly tightening her pores as she zipped and zapped, then applied layer after layer of cream." you know i think this is universal everybody just mm-hmm. trying
2: to be younger in showing yeah. that appearance and being very concerned about that in general and i know we're going to talk about hair and we've talked about i've talked about my own concerns about hair this is mm-hmm. a whole different level but like truly feeling like that's our worth mm-hmm. and we need to keep it somehow and that if we will do whatever we can also my mom's a huge fan of QVC. i think still Really? Yeah. Every now and then, I'll get something. I'm like, this is from QVC, and she's like, it was a <laughs> deal. And I'm like, why? <laughs> Thank you. I don't want Marie Osmond's whatever new <laughs> cooking utensil <laughs> this is. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But yeah, like I, I definitely see that. But QVC became an American like phenomenon. Is that it, the way to yeah. say it? It really became a new way of buying. I guess it it was a precursor to online buying.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, again, this is interesting to me because of the, sometimes you have to step back and think about, oh yeah, I do this kind of painful beauty regimen or I do this really long beauty regimen because uh, we do feel like that is our worth and we're told that is our worth. Um, And uh, I don't know, I just kind of stuck out to me because when my dad got sick, she was doing this before he got she got sick, but um, well, my dad got sick. He started buying things like this, too. Yeah. And I remember it, it, it makes sense. But I remember kind of being like, oh, oh you know, oh, we have all these different types of toothpaste and skin creams and all of this stuff. Like, oh. yeah, Yeah. It's
2: a thing for sure. And yeah, we go on. In retrospect, I should have been able to hold up this information to my mother's obsession with beauty to her affection for brand labels and all the hours she spent on skincare and recognize the source of her attitude, a legitimate cultural difference rather than a caprice of her own superficial nagging. Like food, beauty was an integral part of her culture. Nowadays, South Korea has the highest rate of cosmetic surgery in the world, with an estimated one in three women in their 20s having undergone some type of procedure, and the seas of that circumstance run deep in the language and the moors of the country. Every time I ate well or bowed correctly to my elders, my relatives would say, I go yapeo, yapeo, or pretty was frequently employed as a synonym for good or well behavior. And this fusion of moral aesthetic. Approval was an early introduction to the valid of beauty and the rewards it had in store. Um, yeah, and I, it's true. Like, we know that South Korea has some of the uh, highest amounts of cosmetic products as well, to the point that it's so popular in the U.S. at this point in time. And some of the highest selling products in most of the cosmetic stores like Sephora and Ulta and it kind of is like, hey, this is a South Korean product. You should use it because it g- gives it gives it a little bit of validity.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm not going to lie, I definitely got caught up in that. I'm like, oh, let me see <laughs> what this one is about. Does it have bleach? I will not use it. A lot of products have bleach in it because, you know, lighter skin, colorism is a thing. And that is part of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is sort of another example of her learning more about her mother and why it was important. And it was really painful to watch her mother lose that through illness. And yeah, she does lose a lot of her hair, um, just when it was so important to her. And speaking of, this brings us to the grief portion, which is a big theme. (laughs) It is throughout. It starts and doesn't stop. Um, And I did relate so much to a bunch of this, especially the guilt, like I said, of looking back at everything you did, um, the desperation to be better. Uh, to to make up, to make the relationship work, um, to tell stories. Like there's a part where she's, Michelle's telling her mother, like, remember when we did that? Like che- trying to cheer her up. Mm-hmm. And that's the last thing I did, me and my dad did, because I was trying to cheer him up. Wanting to get married before they die, I did consider it. And then I was like, oh, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, it worked out <laughs> okay for her, but it wouldn't have for me. Okay. Um, always uh, trying to find something to look forward to. So for instance, Uh, We would plan. We planned this trip to Tofino, Canada, which he'd always wanted to go to. We kind of did that to like kind of give him, you know, something to look forward to. So he'd keep fighting, Um, and yeah, definitely discovering stuff after they've died, even like physical stuff, but also just stuff about them and their past that you didn't know, and you're kind of shocked you didn't know. And then like all the medical equipment in the house, Mm -hmm. the medical bed in the house, and I don't know trying to help them and it's it's just hard cuz you know they don't want to ask for your help but they need right, it. Right. And this is my case and also the case that was here but that's how I felt. Yeah. Oof. oof, 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 oof. Okay, here's a quote. Sometimes my grief feels as though I've been left alone in a room with no doors. Every time I remember that my mother is dead, it feels like I'm colliding with a wall that won't give. There's no escape, just a hard surface that I keep ramming into over and over. A reminder of the immutable reality that I will never see her again. And I feel like that's such a great description, because that's. I often feel like, for me, it's like if you take a bat and you swing it as hard as you can against a hard surface and it reverberates back. yeah. That's how it feels like for me and and I love this connection with food because I've told you before a lot of times I'll like boiled eggs for some reason. it's a big one. He loved boiled eggs, yeah, and it'll just stick with you, and the her whole thing is about that, right,
2: yeah, again, yeah, aligning with it with comfort and in, in a tradition and skill, also home it's it's mm-hmm. it's a home. Uh, And she goes on, I screamed to her in her language and my mother tongue, my first word, hoping she'd hear her little girl calling. And like the quintessential mother who suddenly filled with enough otherworldly strength to lift the car and save her trapped child, she'd come back for me. She'd wake for just a moment, open her eyes and tell me goodbye, impart something, anything to help me move forward, to let me know it all worked out. Above all, I wanted so desperately for her last words not to be pain. Anything at all but that.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Here's another one. Overwhelmed by wretchedness, I had to pause to let it settle. I was not prepared for this. No one has prepared me for this. Why must I feel it? Why must I have this memory? They were just going to put her in a bag like trash to be removed. They were just going to burn her. And yeah, that's... Oh, gosh. I think about that a lot. Because it's so painful. Like, there's so right. many things that are so... You look back and you have those, like, beautiful memories and happy memories. And then you have that.
2: <laughs> right. And it's hard when yeah. it's the last memories that you have. The most yes. recent one. So, it, it's etched in you for so long.
1: Mm-hmm. Because you
2: you're trying to hold on. And we didn't mm-hmm. mention earlier that she also uh, has the experience of her aunt and her grandmother dying uh, Mm -hmm. as well and talking about seeing the cremation uh, ceremony that happens Mm -hmm. in South Korea, which I didn't know about and the trauma of that. So she kind of is alluding to that picture of her mother as well. Yeah. This is where I say it is heavy, it is raw, and it is unapologetic in just being honest
1: Mm -hmm.
2: about her experience. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it crushes your heart a little bit because you if you've ever felt any loss,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you understand. But yeah. if you've felt the loss of a parent, then it goes so much deeper. Um, and the the reality of the rawness of that or a partner or a sister, like when you have yeah. that closeness of someone and losing that, it is, it is a part of you. And legitimately feeling that you have lost a part of you. hmm and the things that they have expected to do, especially as the only child who is kind mm-hmm. of a caretaker to the father, the things that she was yeah. responsible for. Yep. I know that if my, when my parents die and if I'm still here, my siblings are still here, I won't be the one that handles all of that, most likely. And mm-hmm. I'm very grateful to that because my older siblings will probably have handled that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Or my my remaining parent, if they if one should stay alive. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
1: whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a that whole dutiful daughter thing we talked about again, because it'll be me uh, for my mom, for sure. Right.
0: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers,
1: or celebrate your victories.
2: No matter the moment, you can savor it all with a chilled glass of New Zealand's finest. As the number one-ranked Sauvignon Blanc in the U.S., Kim Crawford has classic aromas of lifted citrus, tropical fruit, and crushed herbs to help you stay in a golden hour state of mind. Because golden hour is more than just time, it's whenever you want to savor amazing. Visit KimCrawfordWines.com to learn more. That's KimCrawfordWines.com to find Kim Crawford Wine near
1: you. not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
2: PNC Bank. Brilliantly boring since 1865.
1: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association member FDIC. Okay, let's talk about the food because that's huge throughout. <laughs> Let's take a little breather, even though that's not necessarily a breather in this book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I did get a lot of cravings. The food descriptions were amazing, and yeah, the this idea of throughout that of food as a connection to identity, of connection to people, to culture, um, bonding over food, and food being this powerful nostalgia factor or this powerful memory thing, and how like when her mother was sick she started to try to make these foods and learn how to make these foods and have that connection um, and then continuing to do that after she died. But also, as you've said, can be triggering. Right. For sure. Uh, I trying to f- remind
2: myself of specific foods because I have pictures and taste sensories that I'm like, I don't know what it's called. So desperately trying to look it up. That's what I've been doing for the past 10 years. Um, we're going to talk about Mong Chi in just a minute who is a Korean uh, cook and YouTube as a person, but like she's kind of become an icon for people trying to figure this stuff out. Um, and I have, I've used some of her recipes, but yeah, Annie's been a part of mine, like I'm gonna make kimchi jjigae today and you're gonna eat it. She's like, okay, thanks.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Instead of being oh, like, exactly. what's happening? <laughs>
2: um, and all the bonchons and we've done the eggs and like trying, like hearing her describe these foods, I'm like, yeah, that's what I wanna know. And at least knowing it feels like a small victory, even though it's unfamiliar. Yeah. Um, the noodles we talked about, uh, is something that I tried to remember the entirety of my childhood and only discovered again last year. Like it's, it's that, mm-hmm. uh, maybe two years ago, but it is. It also took me that long to be okay with it, um, to, to want to find it because there's a lot of confusing emotions, trauma. Uh, guilt, uh, loss, all of these things that happened for me because those are the things that I do remember. I guess my body remembers more so than outside of those trauma moments of like, oh my God, this is too familiar. I'm scared. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it definitely does hold to that. But also, yeah, I really want to hold to the culture because all the culture, ah, individual cultures may have this, but specifically like Southern Specifically, like Korean Asian cultures, there is ceremony within these foods. Uh, mm-hmm. The way uh, people who know their foods and styles, they can't describe to you how to do it, and it is quite infuriating. You're like, "Where are the <laughs> measurements?" Uh, but you know that's that is a home to them. It is a second language to them, and mm-hmm. that's why they don't have that. Um, mm-hmm. And speaking of, let's let's uh, get into her words. I wonder how many people at H-Mart miss their families. How many are thinking of them as they bring their trays back from the different stalls? If they're eating to feel connected, to celebrate these people through food, which ones aren't able to fly back home this year or for the past 10 years? Which ones are like me, missing the people who are gone from their lives forever? I did the same thing, actually. I looked around and I wondered if anybody was having similar experiences as I was uh, Mm -hmm. trying these foods. Um, And to be grounded, while like grounded to the point that I'm not triggered to eating these foods in public, like really wondering, do people know I'm faking this? Like (laughs) all these things. Also, do people know that I'm trying to find myself again Mm
1: -hmm. doing
2: this in a public space? Yes, at tables with many people around me scurrying about trying to eat their hot dogs or mochi uh, Mm -hmm. donuts, which by the Mm -hmm. way are good.
1: (laughs) They sound delicious. (laughs) Uh, Here's another quote. I remember these things clearly because that was how my mother loved you, not through white lies and constant verbal affirmation, but in subtle observations of what brought you joy, pocketed away to make you feel comforted and cared for without even realizing it. She remembered if you liked your stews with extra broth, if you were sensitive to spice, if you hated tomatoes, if you didn't eat seafood, if you had a large appetite. She remembered which banchan side dish you emptied first so the next time you were over, it'd be set with a heaping double portion served alongside the various other preferences that made you, you. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, my mom's kind of like that too. Um, and I like—I have a Post-it note I keep of, of I call it my foo profiles. If people mention they like something, like, okay, make a note. Yeah. Um, but it is. I know so many people who do show their love this way um, through feeding people and thinking of these things. But I just love that idea of yeah. pocketing that. <laughs> I might do that. I think you might. <laughs> it's all good.
2: <laughs> I uh, I laugh about the fact that I try to feed people to make me, make them like me. <laughs> not necessarily cooking for them though. I, I actually rarely cook, so Annie's been able to taste my cooking as we've been around enough. But yeah, that's not necessarily the thing I do. I try to organize and feed you. I Mm will find cheese to feed you, damn it. Um, (laughs) Yes. It would go on. It says, I tried to explain to Nami how much it meant to me to share food with her, to hear these stories, how I'd been trying to reconnect with memories of my mother through food, how Kay had made me feel like I wasn't a real Korean, what I was searching for when I cooked jjigae and jukjuk on my own, the psychological undoing of what I felt had been my failures as a caretaker, the preservation of, of a culture that once felt so ingrained in me, but now it felt threatened. But I couldn't find the right words, and the sentences were too long and complicated for any translation app. So I quit halfway through and just reached for our hand, and the two of us went on slurping the cold noodles from the tart, icy beef broth. Um... Yeah, I love that scene because uh, her her nummy, who the aunt, was like, you made this? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of in shock. Um, mm-hmm. She was very proud to be able to share mm-hmm. it. And yeah, Kay had been the character who kind of came in, swooped in and took care of her. And instead of teaching, she just overtook. Yeah. Uh, but there was an obvious complication in their relationship that I don't know if we'll ever know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if she addresses it in a different book or not, but... Yeah, there's something to be like, I don't know when I make these Korean foods, if it's actually the same. Actually, we just had uh, another kimchi jjigae for the first time. And I was like, okay, I feel like I'm pretty close. <laughs> I feel pretty proud. Mm-hmm. Um, but wanting, but it would be petrified to have a Korean person try and tell me how badly I did or how American Americanized it is. And that would make me sad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it would make me really sad, um,
0: yeah.
2: but wish I could have uh, someone to teach me, truly teach me
0: mm-hmm. what these
2: are, to even experience it. I actually have a giant fear of going into Korean restaurants uh, because there's a fairly big discriminatory community against um, whitewashed, as they call them, uh, Asians. There's a lot of other names that they call them that's insulting. Um And I I don't want that, the anxiety of that. I make my partner go in and get things. I'm like, nope, not going, you're going. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I'm scared to death of the reactions, of the disappointment when they find out who I am, like what I am essentially, and feeling fake. But wanting to be a part of that culture is a whole thing for sure.
1: Yeah, and I have heard again, heard you talk about this and go through this and struggle with this. And one of the things that I read in this book that I was like, oh yeah, Samantha has told me about this too, was Michelle talks about finding this community online and watching these cooking videos to help teach herself.
2: I mentioned Meng before, before, uh, and she is a big creator that has several cookbooks that a lot of us adoptees, a lot of Koreans have really just latched on to uh, as if she is our aunt or our sister who is helping us to to learn our culture again. Um, And it's not that her foods are simple. They're not. They can get complicated, but it just feels accessible, I guess. Um, Mm -hmm. It's pretty. She is seemingly kind and encouraging in her videos. So she started YouTube videos. Like she has, uh, I did the kimchi jage from her recipe specifically online, which has like, a five-star review, essentially, like 4.9 stars from like 30,000 reviewers. It's, she's huge. As in fact, on Reddit, there's a the whole Monchi appreciation page. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, it's really cute. I went through and looked at it. There is a TikToker that I follow who had a similar idea, like not at the same time, but like I wanted to try to kind of relay my experience in searching my identity through cooking. But she does it through Monchi's cookbook and does a recipe a day, talks about her frustrations and her growth. And she's got a big big following and just about trying to find herself and teaching her culture to her own children, a culture she doesn't think that she knows well enough, but really like loving and embracing this cookbook. Um, And yeah, that's kind of the significance of who this woman is. She has become the unofficially... Uh, sister, I guess, unofficial sister to so many of us who's just trying to find someone to accept us. I have her cookbook and have used it a couple of times and really excited about jumping in. But yeah, uh, it's a huge part of obviously the culture in itself and learning the recipes and understanding the recipes and just trying to find your identity. And this is, she is the most accessible thus far that I've seen um, and seems like someone who, Wants to spread that love rather than not, and she was one of the few that again used measurements.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> yes, which Michelle also mentioned the <laughs> lack of measurements in a lot of recipes. But yeah, that brings us to our final theme we wanted to talk about, which we've been touching on throughout. But identity, um, and we've already talked about language barriers and identity, finding identity through food. But we wanted to include some quotes. We don't talk about it. There's never so much as a knowing look. We sit here in silence eating our lunch, but I know we are all here for the same reason. We're all searching for a piece of our home or a piece of ourselves. We look for a taste of it in the food we order and the ingredients we buy. Then we separate. We bring the hall back to our dorm rooms or our suburban kitchens, and we recreate the dish that couldn't be made without our journey. I just love that. I love the description of all the different types of people there and why they might be there. and. Getting all this, these ingredients and trying to recreate it, yeah, right. Um, and it goes on.
2: Within five years, I lost both my aunt and my mother to cancer. So when I go to H Mart, I'm just on. I'm not just on the hunt for cuttlefish and three bunches of scallions for a buck. I'm searching for memories. I'm collecting the evidence that Cor- that the Korean half of my identity didn't die when they died. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, I think I talked about that. Just sitting there, staring. I try to remember, honestly, for me, what I think I know and don't know. Try to sit there and read the Korean words. So uh, if, if you've heard me struggling with some of the Korean words, when it's written in English, I can't pronounce it. So I had to go see the Korean written away because I did learn some of the Korean uh, phonetics and alphabet. So that's the only way I can do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's kind of the familiar. Well, I, I will sit there. And she talks about this in the language portion. Sound it out. Mm-hmm. and trying to remember. And then when I say it out loud, I'm like, oh, that's the American version of this. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. that's good. Super. I think that is one of those. And so I'm like, okay, I got this one. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's how I do it to the point that uh, someone, someone had seen me do it. And they're like, are you just making things up? I'm like, no, no, no. I really do know the pronunciations. And this is the only way I can read it, saying it out loud. And I can't pronounce it because like, I will see it written out in English. And because uh, of the phonetics, it's different. People may put different letters for different uh, of the Korean alphabet, So when it flips like that, I, I don't know it as mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I see it in Korean. I'm like, okay, I see what they're trying to say. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's a whole whole thing of sitting there and trying to read what I'm saying and v- f- trying to figure out if I understand or this seems familiar for me. I right. did touch a lot with the candies, which I didn't have much of, but there were some pies and things that I'm like, I know what that one is. I need huh. that.
1: <laughs> yeah and I, I really uh, I loved the scene where um, it was a specific scene but it happened on more than one occasion but when uh, Michelle and her mom would go visit their family in Korea uh, they would wake up in the middle of the night kind of like jet lagged or whatever and sneak food Korean yeah. food out of the refrigerator and just giggle and laugh and enjoy it together which is something they never would do in the US yeah. um, I just really liked that, that kind of bonding scene between them
2: Right. Um, And going on, I didn't have the tools then to question the beginnings of my complicated desire for whiteness. In Eugene, I was one of just a few mixed race kids at my school and most people thought of me as Asian. I felt awkward and undesirable and no one ever complimented my appearance. In Seoul, most Koreans assumed I was Caucasian until my mother stood beside me. They could see the half of her fused to me and I made sense. Suddenly my, quote, exotic look wasn't something to be celebrated. Uh, Yeah, obviously, I absolutely, I was one. No, I was one of two Asian people that existed there. And it wasn't until, I think, fourth grade that when she moved there, her and her uh, parents, who uh, her mom was Filipino and her dad was white. uh, I never had another Asian person. And even still, I desperately, because everything I knew was white, I didn't have family that was Asian. So that was absolutely a no-no. Being othered very quickly, uh, and tokenized still, let's be honest. It's a thing. Uh, my wish as in fact, oddly enough, therapy session recently, which was pretty traumatic. I'm not going to lie. Um, talked about, I forget that I'm Asian until I look into the mirror and I had to readjust my face. That makes sense. Like I look like me. Mm -hmm. But I kind of forget that I'm Asian. I say that often. And that used to be a thing as if like when people would say that to me, oh, yeah, I don't even think of you as Asian. Realizing how microaggressive that is um, and then thinking that that's a compliment. Right. And why I sought out to be white and how I ended up hating the way I looked and wishing I could be anything else (laughs) but this. And even to Mm -hmm. the point like I really wish I was half white at the very least so that I could be passing which is such mm-hmm. an absurd uh, conversation now as an adult. And I still have a hard time with it, obviously. <laughs> I had a therapy session about it. <laughs> but yeah, trying to figure that out and to come to terms with what that is. And then again, because I feel like I am absolutely Korean by looks, When I, if I were to go to Korea, which I'm petrified of ever doing, that I will be seen as fake. And mm-hmm. um, the anxiety of being that way feeling lost, which i have always been othered by both uh, cultures, it feels, it feels, yeah, tiresome and hurtful.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I can see that. I can see that. Um, Well, here's another quote that's also (laughs) tiresome and hurtful. After gym class and when I was still reeling from the shame of my fall from athletic grace, a girl from my class confronted me in the bathroom with what would become a familiar line of questioning. Are you Chinese? No. Are you Japanese? I shook my head. Well, what are you then? I wanted to inform her there are more than two countries that made up the Asian continent, but I was too confounded to answer. There was something in my face that other people deciphered as a thing displaced from its origin, like I was some kind of alien or exotic fruit. What are you then? Was the last thing I wanted to be asked at 12, because it established that I stuck out, that I was unrecognizable, that I didn't belong. Until then, I'd always been proud of being half Korean, but suddenly I feared it'd become my defining feature, and so I began to efface it. Right.
2: Yeah, obviously, this, I, I, her saying that term. What are you?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I got that. I get that still. Uh, I got that from adults as a kid, so it's kind of like, wow, that's really insulting. You can't yeah. say that in a different way. Um, <laughs> but being constantly asked, "Where are you from? Where are you from? Really? No, really? You have your mm-hmm. English is really good." And I'm sitting here going, mm,
1: <laughs> not yeah. compliments.
2: Okay. Um, Uh but yeah, being asked what I am, that was definitely one of those moments of trying to, and just, again, this is where I've talked about it previously, of just trying to blend in or disappear altogether. Um, and why we talk about the assimilation thing being unhealthy and Mm -hmm. moving on, it says, when my peers started dating, I developed a complex that the only reason someone would like me was if they had yellow fever and if they didn't like me. I tortured myself over whether it was because of the crude jokes boys in my class would make about Asians having sideways pussies and loving you a long time. Yeah. Um, All of those are very familiar. I've heard it all my life. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: All my life. Up until recently. At my jobs. Yeah. Nothing new. And trying to really go beyond it. There's a new talk, and I don't. It's a new level of prejudice towards Asian women by Asian men, saying that Asian women complain about being fetishized, but then they date white people, white men. So, do you really hate it that much? It's such a slap in the face. Yeah. Um. And I'm, and I really, and this was recently seen, and I'm I really want to be like, you know, women have been killed, pushed, and, and like murdered, and hurt and violated because they're Asian, right? Like that mm-hmm. this is not the this is not the flex you think it is. This is not the insult. And people and so many people agreeing with him. Yeah. It was it was it's scary of that. Like yeah. okay, you really you really devalue women in such a way that this is what you see.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And then
2: you're double down on it saying that, but it's true. Is it?
1: Yeah.
2: Um <laughs> being fetishized and having a partner that's not within the same ethnicity doesn't have anything to do with each other, honestly. Women who, and we talked about it so often, fetishism means sexualization, which often leads to violence and or some type of ownership. And that needs to be the conversation, but yet it talks about women's choices, but okay. (laughs) And this this kind of rhetoric is exactly that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can't understand How it's not. But anyway, so going on, uh, she says, what a cruel twist of fate, I thought, my face reddening as I fought back the tears. I had spent my adolescence trying to blend in with my peers in suburban America and had come of age feeling like my belongings was something to prove, something that was always in the hands of other people to be given and never my own to take to decide which side I was on, whom I was allowed to align with. I could never be of both worlds, only half in and half out, waiting to be ejected at will by someone with a greater claim than me, someone full, someone whole. For a long time, I had tried to belong in America, wanted and wished for it more than anything. But in that moment, all I wanted was to be accepted as a Korean by two people who refused to claim me. You are not one of us, Kay seemed to say, and you will never really understand whats what it is she needs, no matter how perfect you try to be. And yeah, that's that scene where her, uh, Kay and her mom connect on a different level. Um, yeah, and again, that's, that that uh, sums a lot of my feels
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> uh, perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and never being part of any any culture, and never being accepted, and can be easily pushed out by those who
1: hold those standards better mm-hmm. than me. Yeah. Yeah, again, there's so much I was reading this. I was like, oh, that's, I've heard Samantha say this. I've yeah. heard this. Um, okay, well, we wanted to end on one last quote. I had thought fermentation was controlled death, left alone, a head of cabbage molds and decomposes. It becomes rotten, inedible. But when brined and stored, the course of its decay is altered. Sugars are broken down to produce lactic acid, which protects it from spoiling. Carbon dioxide is released and the brine acidifies. It ages. Its color and texture transmute. Its flavor becomes tartar, more pungent. It exists in time and transforms. So it does not quite control death because it enjoys a new life altogether. The memories I had stored, I could not let fester, could not let trauma infiltrate and spread to spoil and render them useless. They were moments to be tended. The culture we shared was active, effervescent in my gut and in my genes, and I had to seize it, foster it so it did not die in me. I just love that. I thought that was so mm-hmm. eloquent mm-hmm. and really tying together that, the food connection and the culture and the grief and finding new life and memories and carrying them on and keeping them with you. All right. I will say, and it really doesn't have the same thing, but I feel like my ultimate
2: accomplishment will be making a good vat of kimchi.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm scared
2: to even try. <laughs> yeah, it's...
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I was like, we need... We got to get you the refrigerator, the right pots. So we got to do the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, well... You know, Samantha, you can keep us posted if you want to. No pressure. Um, (laughs) But this book was really lovely and I highly recommend it. Again, go in prepared. It's not an easy read necessarily, but it is beautiful and really moving um, and absolutely worth checking out. And in the meantime... If you have any suggestions for our next book club, we would love to get them. You can email us at and Momstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I've Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina. Thank you, Christina. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff on Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.